Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and while you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our uh, children's class, uh, which will be there in the, the back room, so you can make your way there, and the volunteers will be there to greet you and to welcome you to your class this morning. Um, everyone else, again, will be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and to just give everyone a Heads up of where we're going to be uh, heading over the next few weeks. We'll be uh, uh, this will be our last sermon in Hebrews for a little while. We'll be taking a break next week on Christmas Day to focus on the birth of Christ and the significance of that, and then we'll take some time at the beginning of the new year to look forward to the coming year and to challenge one another uh, uh, to pursue the truth of God's word together. And then after that, we will uh, be hopping back into Hebrews. But so that'll kind of be the first this morning as we continue to make our way through this book. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. So let me read that passage for us and then pray and ask for the Lord's help. So Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Father, first and foremost, once again, we want to thank you for the finished work of Christ, the single sacrifice, once for all time, sacrifice of himself. And when he offered himself up on the cross, he is our only hope. We proclaim it every Sunday, but we proclaim it again right now, this very moment through the life, the death, and the power, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are gathered here this morning because of your mercy and grace bought for us on the cross by Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit that you have sent to dwell in us, that you would be at work in us this morning. Father, as we kind of turn the corner in the book of Hebrews and move toward these, these really, really challenging passages where the weight of all that we've been learning rests on us. And so, Father, we're going to Uh, myself included, we are going to feel the conviction of the Spirit this morning. And so, Father, I pray that that you would use that conviction and even perhaps that brokenness that you will bring to our hearts this morning to drive us toward Jesus, that you would use it for our good, for the glory of your name, that you would use it to conform us more and more to the likeness of Christ. 
So, Father, I'm just reminded in these coming passages of Hebrews that what we are called to do is to submit ourselves to the authority of your word, to follow wherever it leads, to do whatever it says by the grace you've given us, by the power of your spirit at work within us. And so, Father, I just pray that you would, by your grace, allow us to do that, allow us to pursue obedience to what you're calling us to together as your people this morning. And may we look back on these these weeks as we spend uh, in these challenging passages of Hebrews over the next months, that we would look back and see that it changed us, that we were different people because of what you accomplished in us. And so, Father, I pray, as I do every week, that you would guide my words, allow me to speak only what is true of you, only what is true of what you are calling your people to be and to do, and that you would use this morning and this moment for the glory of your name and the good of your people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, verse 19 marks a significant transition uh, in the book of Hebrews. We spent Ten and a half chapters learning about the supremacy of Christ over all things, right? We spent months looking at this, the supremacy of Christ over the angels, that he is greater than the angels, that he is greater than Moses, that he is greater than the high priest, that he's a greater and more perfect sacrifice, that his sacrifice is greater than all the blood spilled for all time and the the, uh, sacrificial system combined. We saw that he willingly laid down his life and offered up himself as a spotless sacrifice in our place, to put sin away, to make us perfect, and to save those, us, who are eagerly waiting for him, right? We have, by God's grace to us, it's been a privilege, right? It's it's been a privilege. We have been able to drink out of a fire hydrant of the glory of Christ in these first 10 chapters of Hebrews, week after week, meditating on the greatness of what he has accomplished and who he is as our great high priest over and above the old covenant and the old sacrificial system. But now the transition comes. What do we do with this? Right? How do we respond to these glorious realities? How does God want us to respond? Right? Is the goal just so that we're going to have a better chance at winning Bible trivia at the next family gathering, right? So we, we know more about the Old, sacrific- Old Testament sacrificial system than we knew before, right? We can state some facts about what Christ accomplished, right? Is that the goal, just to fill our heads with knowledge? No, that's, of course that's not the goal, right? There's something more glorious and more challenging than that could ever be, and that is that the Lord wants us to respond to these truths. He wants to change us by these truths. So, so how do we respond? to these glorious truths. Now, in many ways, you could argue that the rest of the book, starting in verse 19, is an answer to that question. And so we're not going to fully answer that question this morning, right? How do we respond to the truths of these first 10 and a half chapters? But there is no doubt that these immediate responses that the Lord is calling us to have rise to the top, that these immediate commands that come right after these ten and a half chapters carry a significant and particular weight for us. That this is how we ought to respond to this truth that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And so here are the three responses the Lord is calling us to have. One, 
let us draw near to God. Two, let us hold fast to our hope. And three, let us push each other toward love and good works. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our hope. Let us push each other toward love and good works. Now, before we even get into these individual responses, and I'll mention each of them again, I just want to be sure we see how this passage is structured. Because look, I know that pastors are often given a hard time, right? Every, every sermon is three points, right? How do you get three points out of every passage? Well, the reality is, often that's just how the New Testament authors wrote. And here's a clear example of that, right? And I just want you to see how clear it is in here, what's happening here in verses 19 through 25. There are three let us statements. Three let us statements. You see it there in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. And then everything else around that is describing why and how we do that. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And look, I love how the author of Hebrews uh, phrased these, this, 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 these two words that he used, let us do these things. This is a, it's a first person exhortation, right? He is putting himself in a position with those who are reading this letter, right? He is standing here with us saying, come on, let's, let's do this together. Let's pursue this together, right? This is not a command, though it is. It is a command, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's this first person uh, calling us together to do this, right? Come on, let's join together and do this. Let us draw near to God together. Let's hold fast to our hope together. Let's, let's stir one another up to love and good works together. It's not someone sitting back and telling us what to do. He's stepping into it with us and calling us to join him on this journey of response to the glorious truths of the gospel. And these three commands, these three exhortations are built on the foundation of what Christ has already accomplished. And you see that there in verses 19 through 21. Verses 19 through 21, in many ways, is just a summary of what we have been learning about Jesus as our great high priest, right? Therefore, brothers, and brothers meaning brothers and sisters, people of God, therefore, people of God, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So, so that's foundation number one. So because this is true, since this is true, because we have confidence to enter the holy places because of what Christ has done, and because, verse 21, and because we have a great priest over the house of God, let us be about these three things, drawing near to God, holding fast to the confession of our hope, and considering how we can stir one another up to love and good works. Now, we'll look at verses 19 through 21 in detail as we move into the first response that we need to draw near to God. But I just want, wanted you to see this structure that he's reviewing the foundation that lies under these commands. And then he's calling us to these three responses to draw near to God, hold fast to our hope, and push each other toward love and good works. So let's just begin with the first response, the first exhortation, which is, let us draw near to God. Let us 
draw near to God. So, so look right there, verse 22, those four words, let us draw near. Now the power of those four words could potentially get lost in all that needs to be said about those four words, right? With, with what comes before and what gets at, what comes after it. But I don't want you to just lose the main exhortation, the main command, which is that God is calling us to draw near. To draw near to him. That one of the main ways we respond to what we have been learning about Christ and his greatness and what he has accomplished for us, our, one of our main responses to that ought to be that we draw near to God. And I just want you to think for a moment on how staggering, how otherworldly that would have sounded to these first century Jews. Right? Just think about all that we've been, been learning about the Old Covenant and the Old Testament sacrificial system and how there were layers upon layers of distance between man and God that were put there by God himself, right? These layers and layers that kept people from, from God himself, right? He, God gave the tabernacle or he gave the temple to be a representation of his presence here among his people, and even inside that tabernacle or temple, there were layers of holiness through which only certain people could proceed. There were literal physical layers. There was a literal physical veil or curtain, right, dividing the mercy seat where God dwelt and met with his people from, from anyone else. That no, only one person could go in there. So just, just think about all the layers that existed in the temple. First, there was the court of the Gentiles, which existed on the very outside of the temple. So the Gentiles were welcome there, but no further in. And then another layer in, yeah, all of Israel could go into there, but only one tribe of 12 could go farther in, right? Only one tribe of 12 could serve as priest in the temple and could participate in offering the sacrifices on the altar. And so they were a little closer, but then there was even beyond that layer, the Holy of Holies itself, Right, divided by this curtain that I mentioned. And into there, as we learned earlier in Hebrews, only, only one priest could go, the great high priest, and he could only go once a year, and he could only go with great preparation. Right? He had to sacrifice a bull and, and had to bring along two goats, one that he placed the sins of God's people on and sent away, and the other goat that he burned on the altar. Right? He had to sacrifice a bull for himself, a goat for himself. He had to bathe himself and put on special linen garments before he could enter in behind the curtain, only again once a year. And, and as he entered in, he had to carry incense with him. Right? You can read about all of this in Leviticus 16, he would carry an incense that would create a cloud of, of smoke, essentially, a cloud of incense inside the Holy of Holies. And the reason that that cloud was created, Leviticus 16, 13 says, is so that he would not die. Even he going inside the Holy of Holies had to keep a cloud of separation between himself and the mercy seat so that he would not die. And can you imagine those who had grown up inside this old covenant, which had been a part of the Jewish people for thousands of years, 
And God now says, draw near. Come close to me. It is a staggering invitation. And not only can we draw near, but what does verse 19 say? We can have confidence to enter the holy places. Can can you imagine what it must have been like for that high priest to walk into the holy of holies? Am I going to get it cloudy enough in here, right? Am I going to, have I washed my body enough? Have I put on the garments the right way? Did I sacrifice the right way? Am I, it would have been a terrifying reality to walk into the Holy of Holies. And yet now, verse 19 says, because we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can draw near to God. And where does this confidence come from? It doesn't come from you or me. It doesn't come from anything that we have done for how well we washed up, how well we did the sacrifice, how much cloud we created. It has nothing to do with us. What does verse 19 say? Why are we able to have confidence to enter the holy places? Because of what Christ has already done. He has paved the path before us. He is the the new and living way that he himself opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. He allowed his flesh to be torn on the cross and when he allowed himself to take on the wrath of God in the place of God's people, the veil of the temple, right? It clearly tells us in the gospels was torn in two. There was no more division. Even in the temple there was no more division. We can now enter into the holiest of places. Of course this doesn't mean the physical holy of holies. It just means that we can now approach God, that we can now draw near to him because of what he has done and because, verse 21, because he is our great priest over the house of God. We're not waiting for someone to intercede for us and intervene for us. He has already done so. And so we join him. We walk in to the presence of God with Jesus Christ because he himself has gone before us. And not only that, but we are able to draw near with a true heart, with a true heart, a heart that has been changed by the uh, work of Christ on the cross, right? We saw that earlier as Floyd read in the prayer of confession that verse 16 earlier in Hebrews 10, that I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Our hearts have been changed by the grace of God to us. We can enter in with true hearts fixed on the reality of Jesus Christ. We draw near with a true heart. We draw near in full assurance of faith. Look, the point of that statement that we draw near with full assurance of faith is not, it's not, it's not that we are to like, you know, clench our fist and grit our teeth and try to come up with more faith. I've got to be fully assured of faith. I've got to be fully assured of faith before I can know. The point is we can be fully assured because of what we've learned in the first 10 and a half chapters of Hebrews. With full assurance of faith because of what Christ has done. We can be fully assured that Christ has finished the work, that the wrath has been poured out on him, that none of it is waiting for us anymore because Christ has finished the work by single sacrifice for all time. Therefore, we can be fully assured through faith in Christ as we draw near to God. Not only that, we do it with a true heart, we do it in full assurance of faith, but we also are able to do so because our hearts, you see there in verse 22, 
our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right? The, I mentioned earlier the, the high priest, before he could enter into the Holy of Holies, had, he had to be washed. His body had to be washed. He had to be ritually purified and cleansed before he could enter in. But even that ritual cleansing could never reach into the heart, right? All it could do was clean the flesh. But here through Christ, our hearts, the very center of our being, have already, by the work of Christ, been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Again, this is speaking uh, figuratively, our, not, not physically washed, but we have been cleansed by the work of Christ on the cross. We have been declared to be righteous. His righteousness now belongs to us. We have been prepared to enter into the holy places, not because of anything that we have done, but all because of what Christ has accomplished for us in our place. And so what verses 19 through 22 is saying to us is that Christ has removed every obstacle that stood between us and God. He has torn down any physical separation that existed. He has, he has made us clean. He has prepared us to enter into the holy places, these figurative holy places, so that we can now draw near to him. So how do we draw near? Right, think about what we already have done this morning and what we do, Lord willing, every week with our prayer of confession. Right, we, we're willing to come before our Holy Father, the righteous judge of the universe, and confess our deepest, darkest, ugliest, most wicked sins to him. That should be a terrifying thing to do. But, but, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because he's already paid the debt, because he's offered up a single sacrifice for all time, because he has already borne the wrath on himself for those sins that we are confessing, we don't have to be terrified to draw near to him through confession. Right? We can draw near with confidence. We're going to find forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. So, so one way in which we draw near to God is by doing that very thing, by confessing our sins to him, right? We draw near through confession. We, we draw near through prayer. We draw near through thanking him for the cross each and every day, each and every time we come to him. We draw near to God by coming to him and telling him of our needs and our desires and, 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 and what's happening in our lives that we need him to be at work on. We, we draw near to him by telling him about our friends and asking him to be at work in their lives, those who may need grace or mercy or some kind of physical provision in their lives. We, we draw near when we ask him to give us wisdom. We draw near when we call on him and plead with him to empower us to put sin to death in our lives. That's how we draw near to him. And we also draw near when we listen to him as he speaks to us. I want every person in this room to listen to me. Hopefully you're already listening, but listen specifically right now, right? Listen. Every single person in this room Every single person is fully capable 
of hearing the living God of the universe speak specific words to you every day. Now, for some of you, that sounds really mystical and otherworldly. But the reason I have every confidence to say that to you is because in order to hear specific words of God spoken to you every day, all you have to do is open this. We believe that these are the very words of God himself. And you can read your Bible and get up and say to your friend, I heard from God today. He spoke to me. I don't mean in a voice, audible voice. I don't mean through some kind of intuition of sense you have in your spiritual soul. No, I just mean the words on this page. You can draw near to God through prayer, through confession. You can draw near to God through reading his words spoken to you and for you. You see, we, we call on people often, and we ought to, to have what is often referred to as a quiet time, meaning, look, try to set aside time every day at some point, morning, noon, night, whatever works for you. Set aside time to read God's word, to pray, and to listen, right? To pray, pursue his word, memorize God's word, right? Set that aside every day. And I, we don't call on you to do that to check a box. We're calling you to do that because that's how you draw near to God. It's how you draw near to him. It's about honoring the sacrificial work of Christ that has made it possible for us to draw near to God, right? Just think about it. Think Christ humbled himself, came and took on flesh and dwelt among us, right? The the eternal divine son of God through whom and for whom all things were created, who Hebrews 1 tells us upholds the universe by the word of his power. This Jesus Christ came and dwelt among us, lived a perfect life in our place and willingly laid down his life and was mocked and brutally tortured and executed on the cross and took the wrath of God on himself in your place so that you will not have to suffer the wrath of God. He has given you his righteous life. He victoriously rose from the grave. He understands seeds for you every day at the right hand of the Father where he now sits. And can we say to him, but I really don't want to draw near right now. I'm not interested today. I have other things going on. No, we glorify and exalt the work of Jesus Christ by taking time to participate in the gift that was bought for us and draw near to him. Come near to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I say to all of us this morning, let us make drawing near to God the habit of your life. Look, we're about to turn the corner on the end of the year. There is no better time. And we're gonna, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks as we get into Sunday, January 1st and, and January 8th. But look, there's no better time to begin thinking about the coming year and what you want to see accomplished in your life. Think about how am I going to draw near to God in 2023? Start thinking about it now. Be intentional about how you're going to carry that out in your life right now. And I'm happy to help you with that. Any of the elders are happy to help you with that, thinking that through how you can do that on a daily and regular basis. 
So that's our first response to the work of Christ. Let us draw near to God. Second response, let us hold fast to our hope. Let us hold fast to our hope. You see that there in verse 23? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We're being called to hold fast to the confession of our hope, to hold on to this hope that we have been given in Jesus Christ. Well, what is this hope? Well, if you look back at Hebrews 9, verse 15, we saw this a few weeks ago. The author of Hebrews says to us, Therefore, Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There's a promised eternal inheritance that we have been given in Jesus Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ, right? That is our hope that we dwell with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, filled with joy and satisfaction forever and ever because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. And verse 23 is saying, therefore, let us hold fast to this confession of hope without wavering, without weakening our grip. In other words, all the Hebrews are telling us that we need to lay hold of Christ and the hope that we have in him and don't allow anything to cause us to let go. But what I want you to see is that the confidence of this exhortation is not found in the strength of your grip or in your ability to hold fast. No, it is found in our Savior who is faithful. You see that there in verse 23? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. When God makes a promise, there's nothing that can stand in his way of bringing it to pass. He is omnipotent, meaning he is sovereign, all-powerful over all things. He will bring his promises to pass, and he is faithful to do so. He will do what he has said, and therefore we can hang on to the hope that we have, even when everything around us seems like we should let go and give up, right? This is what was happening for these first century Jews. They were being persecuted and mocked, and their lives were extremely difficult after coming to Christ and everything in them just wanted to go back to the easy ways of Judaism. And the author of Hebrews says, no, just just hang on to your hope. He's going to bring it to pass. You can bank on it. You can count on it. It doesn't matter how difficult your circumstances become. Don't give up on Jesus. Hold fast to the confession of your hope. Look, I think the best one of the best biblical illustrations for this is in uh, Matthew 14. So Jesus has just finished feeding the 5,000, which, of course, was amazing, right? They're, they're wrapping that up. The evening is drawing late. And so Jesus says, look, I'll, I'll take care of dismissing the crowd. They're done eating. We're going to send them home now that we've been able to provide for them and feed them. And so He sends the disciples ahead of them. He says, you guys go ahead, get in the boats and head to the other side of the sea. I'll catch up with you later. I don't know what they thought he was going to do or how he was going to get there. But he's like, you guys go ahead. So they get in the boat. They take off. Jesus stays behind. He takes care of the crowd, dismisses the crowd. And then he wants some time to himself, understandably. And so he says he goes and alone and spends an extended period of time communing with the Father. 
He goes and spends time in prayer. And so a long time has elapsed, right? He's taken time to dismiss the crowd. He's gone up and spent time in prayer. So by this time, Matthew 14 tells us that the disciples are way out in the sea. In, in the sea. They're, they're, they're way out there. It says the, the waves and the wind are going crazy. Jesus is done praying, spending time with his father. So he's ready to catch up with them. And so what does Jesus do? He walks up to the shore of the sea and just keeps walking, right? And Jesus walks on water, right? We read about this as if you grew up in church as children, but think about that, right? And it wasn't a smooth, glassy sea, by the way. Matthew 14 says it was a windy, wavy day. The waves were beating against the boat, and Jesus is somehow just, just walking across the water. And he walks out, and he eventually makes it to the boats. And Matthew 14 the, says that the disciples see something. Remember, it was a it was a nasty evening out there, and so they see this figure coming across the water, and they think it's a ghost, right? You would think it was a ghost, and they don't know what's going on, and uh, Jesus knows what they're thinking, and so Jesus says to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And so Peter, being Peter, how Peter typically acts and operates uh, in the New Testament narratives is always the first one to jump in, the first one to take action. And so Peter says to Jesus, command, you to, uh, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus responds and says, come. Now, let's just pause here and reflect on this exchange for a minute. I want you to see that, that Peter understands that Jesus' command to come it will also be a promise that he will be able to come to him. Let, let me try and explain if, if you're not tracking with me. Peter didn't say, Jesus promised me that if I get out of this boat and step on this water, I'm going to make it to you. No, Peter said, command me to come. And Peter knew that if Jesus said, come, and he obeyed, he's going to be able to make it. Right? Peter understood the command of Jesus to be a promise of Jesus. The command of Jesus is a promise of Jesus. The commands of God are always supported by the promises of God. If he has commanded us to do something, he, by the power of his spirit, will empower us to do it. And so Peter, hearing the command and the promise of Jesus, gets out of the boat he steps on the water, and he doesn't sink. And Peter begins to walk toward Jesus. And in that moment, he is holding fast to the confession of his hope because the one who promised him he could walk on the water is faithful. Right? He's holding fast to the promise he has just heard from Jesus. He's looking at Jesus Christ in the eyes and trusting in him He's holding fast to that hope that Jesus is going to sustain him and keep him. And as long as he has his eyes on Jesus, he's fine. But there comes a moment, Matthew 14 says, that Jesus takes his, that, sorry, that Peter takes his eyes off Jesus. And it says that he saw the wind and was afraid. He saw the wind and was afraid. And at that point, he begins to sink. 
And he calls out, Lord, save me. And so, of course, Jesus graciously reaches out, takes him by the hand and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So what I want you to see is that as long as Peter kept his eyes on the faithful one who made the promise, he was fine. But the moment he started looking around at his circumstances, he started to sink. You see, this is, this is the sense of verse 23 of Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast, be fixed on the confession of our hope without wavering. Don't be distracted by all the stuff in the world that's calling you to look away from Jesus because when you start looking away from Jesus, you start looking at your circumstances, you're going to find every reason in the world to be hopeless and your heart's going to sink. But he says, hang on to your hope. Hang on to it without wavering because he who promised is faithful. He will keep you. Remind yourself daily of what Christ has accomplished for you. Look, Jesus is not going to come and take on flesh and be tortured and crucified and give himself up and sacrifice himself on the cross and bear the wrath of God the Father for you and then leave you floundering. It's not how Jesus operates. It's what Romans 8.32 says to us. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's faithful if he's given you his son. If his son died on the cross for you, he's not going to hold back from you what you need to be sustained in the midst of difficult circumstances in your life. So look, our lives are filled with numerous temptations to take our eyes off our faithful Savior, to let go of the hope that we have in Christ, right? The, the, we, if you watch the news, right, you can get downtrodden about the economy and inflation and war and natural disasters and, and terrorist attacks and, and uh, political uh, uh, turmoil and all kinds of reasons, right? And I'm not saying those are not things we shouldn't be concerned about, right? We can be concerned about those things. What I'm saying to you is don't take your eyes off Jesus. Hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering. And he will keep you and he will sustain you and you'll stay on top of the water. Keep your eyes on Christ because he who promised is faithful. So response number one to the finished work of Christ, let us draw near to God. Response number two, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And number three, let us push each other toward love and good works. Look there with me at the final, let us, in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now there is a lot to unpack in verses 24 and 25. And I'm just going to be blunt with you this morning. There are a lot of challenging things that need to be said that come out of verses 24 and 25. But we need to hear them because it's God's word to us. And so we're going to speak them because God wants them to be said. First, what I want you to see in verse 24 is that 
And the original language, the, 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 the word order is a little different. They, they kind of smoothed it out in the translation. But in the original language, it's something more like, and let us consider one another to stir up to love and good works. And the reason I point that out is because the command is isolated there really to let us consider one another. The word consider means to look at carefully, to look at ten, intently, to, to perceive. Let's, let's look at each other carefully. Let's, let's get to know one another is what that command is saying. Let us consider one another. He's calling us to, to not just casually know each other, but to really know each other. This, by the way, is one of those places in Scripture where it seems clear that the early church and the New Testament authors assumed some kind of formal church membership, right? The formal church membership is not like a, a modern creation. Here is the author of Hebrews telling his readers to, that they have an obligation to get to know one another. Who, who are those people that they are to get to know? Well, it can't be every Christian that lives in their city, right? You and I are not called to get to know every single believer in the Raleigh-Durham area with this depth, right? It's not possible. But there is a group of people that you have covenanted with, that you have joined together with, right? You have joined a group of people and you have made a commitment to, to them. And God is saying, among us, as Christ Fellowship Leesville, we need to consider one another. We need to get to know one another. Now look, the reality is, you're not going to know every single person in this church at the same level. I, I get that. I, I can't know all of you equally. You can't know all of each other equally. But listen, this is why we have life groups. This is why we do small groups. Because it is there that you can consider one another carefully, that you can get to know one another. Look, there are Sundays that go by, unfortunately, when I don't get a chance to speak to all of you and I go home and reflect on I get, didn't get to talk to this person or I didn't get to talk to that person. And I know you feel the same way, right? There are Sundays you walk out of here and you didn't get to talk to this person or that person. But look, with life groups, every week coming together, you have a chance to really get to know each other, to really consider one another in a deep and meaningful way, to have intentional conversations. You see, verse 22 is calling us to draw near to God, but verse 24 is calling us to draw near to one another, to draw near to each other. Now, what's the goal, right? What's the goal of this getting to know each other? Well, what does verse 24 say? The goal is that we would stir up one another to love and good works, the, the word stir up, by the way, it's, it's used positively here, and it, and it is often used positively, but it can also be used negatively, which I find fascinating. So, so the word stir up in the original language can sometimes mean irritate, right? So I want to pull a little bit of that over into the positive meaning, right? Provoke one another, irritate one another, do what you need to do to get each other doing love and good works, right? That's the sense of what is being said here. Get to know each other to the degree that you're going to stir each other up, provoke one another to love and good works for the glory of Christ. So this is, a, this is a weighty challenge because what verse 24 does for you and for me is it places on all of us a burden of responsibility. 
that if you look around this room to your right, to your left, behind you, in front of you, what verse 24 says is that you will answer to God for those you have covenanted with as Christ's fellowship leaseful. Did you stir up your brothers and sisters in Christ to love and good works? Now, they're going to bear their own responsibility for whether they carried out love and good works. I'm not denying that, right? We need to pursue obedience. But we bear responsibility for each other by command of God himself. And it is a weighty responsibility. Now, how do we do this? How do we stir up one another to love and good works? Well, verse 25 answers that question for us. So, so not to get too grammatical, right? But, but uh, participles describe how you do something, okay? So, so here's the command. Let us stir one up to love and good works. Well, how do we do that? And verse 25 gives us two ways we do that. Not neglecting to meet together is just the habit of some. And then number two, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Those I-N-G words, right, are describing how it is that we're to stir one another up to love and good works. We do it by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, and we do it by encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I love the simple yet profound logic of the first part of verse 25. Right? If you're going to Consider one another, get to know one another, want, want to get to know one another so you can stir up others to love and good works. You cannot do that unless you're gathering with those people. You can't get to know people unless you're spending time with them, right? That's, that's the simple logic of verses 24 and 25. You simply cannot obey verse 24 unless you pursue verse 25, and are in the habit of regularly meeting together with God's people. Because if you are not gathering, not only can you not know others, you cannot be known. And both are important in your walk with Christ, by the way. You need to be known by your brothers and sisters in Christ so they can provoke you to love and good works, so they can hold you accountable. And you need to know them so you can fulfill your biblical God-given responsibilities to them. And look, verse 25 is honest. Uh, sorry, verse 24 is honest. No, sorry, first half of verse 25, where it says, as is the habit of some, it was already a problem in the first few decades after Jesus' death. People already started neglecting meeting together. And look, it's a problem it's a problem in the American church. Church attendance statistics have taken a nosedive, and it's hard to get at those because, look, I get it. A lot of the reason for that is because people who were in the church weren't really Christians to begin with, and they've, they've revealed that by walking away from the church altogether. Those are not the people I'm addressing this morning. The people I want to address are those who claim to be Christians, who somewhat want to be connected to the church, but their lives demonstrate that it is not a priority. And look, this is where I said I was going to be blunt because I have to say what God has said. This is a command from God 
that we not neglect the gathering of his people. This isn't to build up my ego as a pastor so that we have lots of people here on Sunday. That's not what this is about. This is about the well-being of your soul and of your children's souls. It's about the responsibility that God himself has given you. Look, there are times when you're going to be out on a Sunday, right? Your, your family is going to be on a vacation. You're going to be out of town, right? God's not, it's not hanging that over your head, right? You're going to have an occasional work commitment. There's times when you're going to be, you're going to be really sick and there's just no way you should come to church that day, right? That's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he's talking about neglecting to meet together. So, so how can I just help you practically understand what he means by this command that we are to not neglect meeting together? Because I want to try to be helpful for you, but that's hard to do because it's not like, well, three out of four Sundays is not neglecting to meet together. That, that's not what this is about, right? It's not about statistics. It's not about numbers. It's about your spirit and your heart and your attitude and your motivations, And so the only way I know to do it is to give examples. So assume you've paid $100 for a ticket to a concert of one of your favorite performers. What is it going to take to keep you from going to that concert? A long day at work? I think you're going to make it to the concert. A trying weekend? you're probably going to go to the concert. A sniffly nose, you're going to go to the concert. Right? Modern America has reduced church to such a level that we find easy excuses to avoid attending. Look, I'll be, I'll be honest. Like, it's one of the reasons I'm very hesitant about live streaming. And we started it during COVID because we needed to. And I'm not saying we're canning it because we're not. But sometimes it makes it too easy for you to miss being here because you think I can just catch it on the video. It's not the same thing. Now we're happy to provide live streaming because there's times when people are genuinely sick, when people genuinely can't make it. And I'm thankful they can join us. I'm thankful whatever you're watching us right now. I'm not condemning you, right? But maybe, but maybe you are being challenged right now because maybe you should be here. And let me speak to parents for a moment. And look, I know we're going long this morning, but um, I, I, just, I feel like these things need to be said. So let me be, speak to parents or soon-to-be parents this morning or those who want to one day be parents. Your children are watching your commitment to the local church. I'll, I, so for years in college, seminary, I worked at the YMCA, uh, summer camp counselor, after school programs. And, you know, it was our job as counselors to, 
to engage the kids in the assembly time every day to get them excited about the day and what we were going to be doing. And they always told us, look, if you want to really engage these kids, you got to be over the top, right? Because if, if you're hot, right, if you're fired up, they're just going to be warm. And if you're just warm, they're going to be cold. And if you're cold, they're just li lifeless lumps on a log, right? Look, that applies to your parenting, If you want your children to be fired up and excited about the work of the local church and God's call in their lives to know others and to be known and to help others pursue love and good works, then you must make it a priority in your life. Because your children will reflect, and I, I say this, Factually, I've had these conversations with adults who have grown children. And it's not to heap condemnation on their heads. It's just to say that they would tell you the same thing I'm about to tell you. That when your children leave your home, often their level of commitment to the church will reflect your level of commitment to the church. Now, sometimes God is gracious, right? And look... And it's never a guarantee, right? You can do everything right and a child end up not walking with Christ. I'm not saying otherwise. But listen, if you make sports a Sunday priority, then don't be surprised when they make sleeping in a priority in college. Because I'm telling you, one thing leads to the other. God has not attached any promises to football, to basketball, to soccer. Look, I love sports. I still play basketball multiple times a week to this day. I'm not dogging sports. I love them. I watch Gamecocks football through the thick and thin, and it's mostly thin, right? right? I love sports. But God's promises are attached to his church. And I know for many parents, the thing was well, just a season. It's just a series of six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks or however long the season lasts on Sunday mornings. And I may sound like the most legalistic jerk to you right now, but you're going to thank me one day. Do not neglect the gathering of God's people for the sake of your children and for the sake of your own soul. Because they need to be known and you need to be known. They need to be spurred along to love and good works. And you need to be spurred along to love and good works. And God himself says it does not happen if you make it a habit to neglect meeting with brothers and sisters in Christ. As one commentator put it, if you have an unconcern for believers, then you have an unconcern for Christ himself. The people of God are the children of God and he cares for them deeply. And then finally, let's conclude with this last phrase of verse 25, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look, every day we're alive, we come another day closer to the return of Christ. That's what the day is. None of us knows when it is or when it will be. It may be our lifetime. It may be in another lifetime. But regardless, it is drawing near. 
It is closer right now than it was an hour ago, than it was yesterday or the week before. The day is drawing near, and therefore we must be about encouraging one another. And I want you to see the contrast set up in verse 25. Don't neglect to meet, instead encourage. Don't neglect to meet, but encourage. In other words, one way you encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ is by showing up. That's what verse 25 is saying. Your presence, right? This is the ministry of presence. And I'm not Christmas presence, but presence, like being here, right? The ministry of presence. Your commitment to be here is an encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ to be here. And when you're not here, you're missed. We miss you when you're here. And it can be discouraging. It can be discouraging to your brothers and sisters when you're not present. God is saying that your presence is an, an encouragement to others. Look, there are people who have been going through some really difficult times over the last few weeks in our church, but they have been here. And it has been an overwhelming encouragement to my soul. When you show up, when you just show up, it encourages your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your church attendance is a reflection, according to Hebrews, of what you believe about the finished work of Christ. I don't know how else to interpret verses 19 through 25. Because we have confidence to enter the holy places by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and because we have a great priest over the house of God, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Our commitment to being present in this church is a reflection of what Christ has already accomplished for us, friends. By God's grace, let us respond appropriately to what Christ has done. Let's draw near to God. Let's hold fast to our hope without wavering. And let's, let's consider one another and push each other toward love and good works by being present with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ, that he is our great high priest, that he is gone before us, that he has entered into the holy places, that he has offered a single sacrifice for all time, that there no longer remains an offering for sin because of the finished work of Christ. Now we can draw near. Right now, this very moment, we are able to draw near. Your spirit dwells in us. You are near. You are, you are as near as possible. You are near to us and you're calling us to draw near to you. So I pray that you would make that the habit of our lives and that you would help us by your grace to hold fast by uh, hold fast to our hope by fixing our eyes on Jesus and, and looking to him and trusting in he who is faithful to us. And Father, help us to draw near to one another, to consider one another, to look carefully at one another so that we can encourage one another to pursue love and good works so that we can be encouraged to pursue love and good works for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would make it a priority in our lives to gather with God's people out of love 
for your people and out of a desire to bring glory to the finished work of Christ. So Father, may you do what only you can do within us by the power of your spirit at work. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.